0: When you get really practical with how we as Christians should live, one of the most important areas that kind of demonstrates that we are followers of Jesus is the relationship that we have, the fellowship that we have uh, with other believers. One of the best tests to reveal where you're at in your relationship with God, a great test to see you know where you are in your spiritual maturity, is how you treat other believers. You know what your relationship is like. With them, And that's the next thing that Paul addresses here in Colossians chapter 3. In verses 12 through 17, Paul's going to show us how Jesus' uh, sufficiency and supremacy is demonstrated in our fellowship with other believers. And in these verses, Paul's going to focus on three main things. First, three positions God has given us that should motivate us and should enable us to treat others the way God has called us to. Second, eight godly things we should put on that demonstrate to us how we should treat others the way that God has called us to. And third, four godly principles that we should let into our life to practically help us to treat others the way that God has called us to. This morning, we're going to look at the uh, three positions that God has given us, and we're going to look at these eight things that we should put on, and then next week, we're going to look at uh, the four godly principles we should let into our life. Now, what Paul shares here in this section is extremely applicable, uh, extremely important for us because, you know, we all have relationships with other people, especially other believers. And, you know, the reality is oftentimes we struggle in those things. Oftentimes, you know, we treat people in ways that we shouldn't and and we need to learn what is it that we are called to do? How is it that we should interact? How is it that we should treat uh, one another? And so this is very practical. This is very applicable. And if you will put into practice what these verses challenge you to do, it's gonna revolutionize your relationships with other people. It's really gonna bless them and deepen them in very amazing ways. And it's also gonna deepen and bless your relationship with God because they're connected together. You know, your relationship with God and how you know you live for Him is really connected and it's gonna be seen in how you treat other people. And so let's see what we can learn this morning about what we should do to treat other believers in the way that God desires us to. Colossians 3, verses 12 through 14 says this, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Now, if you remember in verses 1 through 11 of this chapter, Paul challenged us about how we live, how we should do certain things based on the connection that we have with Jesus, based on the connection with four important things, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection, His ascension, His second coming. And Paul said, hey, because of that connection with Him, because we died to our old life, we were raised to a new life, we'll ascend to heaven and we're going to come back with the Lord, that connection with Jesus should influence, it's should motivate, it should impact the way in which we live. It also should be the thing that we recognize enables us to live the way that we should live in our personal life. And now Paul's kind of transitioning to, well, how do you live in your public life, in the relationships that you have with other people, and he's going to do something very similar as he did before, but this time instead of the connection to those four things that we have with Jesus, Paul starts by sharing this position. We have three specific uh, positions in our relationship with Christ because we are in Christ and have accepted Him, and each one of these positions ultimately should they motivate us and enable us to do what Paul's about to encourage us to do. And so Paul says, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved. So the three positions that here Paul brings out, because you and I have placed our faith in Jesus and now we are in Christ, we have three wonderful positions. We're the elect of God, we are holy, and we're beloved. The Greek word translated elect means chosen. So what Paul is saying is, hey, one of the positions you have because you have accepted Christ is you are the chosen of God. Now, God chose you. That's that's such a wonderful Truth. There's such a wonderful thing to really just allow to sink in. It's a, a deep truth that we see in Scripture, and there's many verses that are connected with this idea of being elected, being chosen. But one of the things that we regularly see connected with God choosing us is that God has chosen us to live for Him. First Peter 2.9 says this, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Here we're told that God has chosen us. But he's chosen us for a purpose. That we would proclaim the praises of him who took us from darkness to light, Who brought us out of that sinful life that we once were in and brought us to the relationship that we have now with Him. And so one of the reasons we've been chosen is to go out and proclaim to people, look what God has done for me. Look what He has done in me. Look at how He's changed my life and, took and taken me from darkness to light. Romans 8.29 says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. The word predestined here means to predetermine, to appoint or choose beforehand. And notice what this verse says that God chose beforehand. He chose us to look, be conformed to the image of his Son. So that's another thing that God, when He chooses us, He desires that not just that we would proclaim the praises of what He's done for us, but that we would be conformed, become like Jesus. That's His desire, His ultimate desire for us. That's what the sanctification process is all about, that each day you and I would become more like Jesus, that we would live each day more like Jesus. Now, this word chosen or elect is used in, in other ways and, and describes other things. But here in Colossians 3, when God says we are the elect or chosen of God, many commentators believe that the Paul's emphasis, especially in the context of what he's about to say, is really speaking about the fact of God choosing us in this particular way to live our lives for Him. So since we are the chosen of God and part of him choosing us was to live for him, that should motivate us. It should challenge us to do what Paul's about to challenge us to do. The second position that Paul tells us we have because we're in Christ is that we are holy. The Greek word translated holy here means separated from the world and consecrated to God. Now, before you and I accepted Jesus Christ, holy would never be a word that we would use to describe ourselves. Oh, we were separated from something, but it wasn't the world. We were separated from God. You know, We were living for the world. We were indulging in all the sins that the world had. So we were the opposite of holy. We were unholy. But wonderfully, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, one great position changes in our life. We go from being unholy to being holy, to being separated to the world, to being separated from the world and consecrated to God. And because of this reality, because of this change, it should influence us. All right, now that I'm no longer in the position of an unholy person, God has now made me holy, I should live like it. It should be seen in my life. I should put these things into practice because this is what a holy person does. The third position that Paul tells us we have because we are in Christ is we are beloved. The Greek word translated beloved means to love dearly, to be extremely fond of. You know, this is one of the greatest parts of our new position. What we have now because we've accepted Christ and we're in Christ, we are now deeply loved by God. And it's such a wonderful position to be in, that God loves you so much that he sacrificed himself for you, that he has forgiven you of all of your sins. And not only that, he loved you enough to adopt you into his family. And the fact that God loves you so much, He loves me so much, that should be really the greatest motivator of all. His love for us should cause me to say, Lord, I want to live for you. I want to do these things for you. I want to love other people like you love me. So our position that we are elect of God, that we are holy, that we are beloved, it should motivate us to what Paul's about to challenge us to put on. We we should really be moved to say, I really want to do this because of this position that I've been given by Jesus Christ. But also we need to realize it's the thing that enables us to accomplish it. Because we're going to look at some things and you're going to think, man, that's a real struggle for me. I I don't know if I could put that on. I don't know if I could do that. And we need to come back to the reality of, wait a second. It's not about me and my ability and my strength. Jesus has changed me. I'm now chosen by God to live in a particular way. I've been set apart to be holy before Him. I'm loved by Him. He's the one who enables me. He's the one who's going to do this. He's the one that's going to give me all that I need to accomplish it. And So recognize as we look at this challenge that God is the enabler and He will give you what you need to accomplish what He's called us to do. So let's look at what this means here to put on these wonderful things. Put on tender mercy, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, and love. What we're challenged here to put on has a direct connection with our standing with Jesus. You see, ultimately what Paul is telling us is because you're in Christ, Put on Christ. But instead of being really general by just saying, put on Christ, he gets specific. Well, what does it look like to put on Christ? Well, What does that mean? If I were to put on Christ, how would that be seen in my life? And he says, well, here are great ways, eight ways, that if you do this, you're going to look like Jesus. Because these are the things that Jesus did. As you look at Jesus' life, this is the way in which he treated people. This is the way that he conducted himself. These are the godly qualities that we see coming out of his life all the time. And so ultimately, you know, the challenge here is because you are in Christ... Put on Christ. Because of your connection with Christ, live like Christ. And here we're just going to get practical so that we don't just walk out and say, great, I need to live like Christ. How do I do that? What does that look like? Well, now we're going to see how we do that. We're going to see what that looks like and hopefully live more like Jesus every day. The Greek word here translated put on means to sink into, to put on, to clothe oneself. So just like you put on clothes every day, Paul says every day there are eight things, eight godly qualities that before you go out of the house, put these on so that it influences and impacts the relationships that you have. Now something important to note is that each one of these eight godly qualities expresses itself in relationships. See, a significant measure of our Christian life is in how we treat other people and the quality of our relationships with them. William Barclay wrote this, It is most significant to note that every one of the graces listed has to do with personal relationships between man and man. There's no mention of virtues like efficiency or cleverness, not even diligence or industry. Not that these are unimportant, but the great basic Christian virtues are those which govern human relationships. So these eight godly qualities that we put on, these are some of the most important things that we can put on in our life because they're connected to really what's something that's so important to God, relationships, relationship with him, relationship with others. This is something that God greatly values. So the first godly quality that Paul tells us to put on is tender mercies. The Greek word translated tender mercies means kindness or goodwill towards the miserable and the afflicted join with a desire and willingness to help them. So it's ultimately caring about the suffering of other people, not just about your own, but taking it one step further, not just a feeling of, wow, I'm really sad for you, but with a desire and willingness to say, what can I do to help you as you're going through these problems? Because oftentimes we look and we'll see a commercial of, you know, somebody who's suffering or, you know, we see a homeless person or we see different things that we're kind of moved. In the sense of, well, I'm really sad for you, but we're not moved to actually do anything. We're not really moved in the capacity of what this word is speaking of. of It's not just feeling bad for someone because they're in a, a difficult situation. It's the fact that I'm actually willing to do something and show kindness and goodwill to them in order to help them. You know, when you and I are suffering, when we're going through difficulty, we want this from others. We want people not just to be like, oh, I feel so bad for you, and they don't help us at all. Well, we don't just want lip service. We want action. We want people to do something. We want people to be there for us. We want people to help us in a practical way. But sometimes, you know, we're just not willing to show that to others. Oh, I love it for people to do it to me, but, you know, man, you're going through problems. I got my own problems. I don't want to help you with your problems. And, you know, we just get selfish and aren't willing to demonstrate this tender mercy to those that are in need of it. Is tender mercies something that you put on every day in your relationship with others? Well, you know, if you're going to look at, we can look at all sorts of examples, but the best example of all, something I'm going to keep emphasizing this morning, is the example of Jesus Christ. He is the best one who put on tender mercies to others. Matthew 9, 35 and 36 says, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Notice how Jesus responds. You see it throughout his life here. He sees people afflicted. He sees people miserable. He sees people who are broken. He sees people who are diseased. He sees people who are demon-possessed. He doesn't say, man, you got so many problems. I don't have time for you. Stay away from me. I got my own issues here. You know, I got things that I'm doing. No, he was moved with compassion when he saw these people. He he saw them as, as sheep without a shepherd. He saw them as people who were lost, needing someone to come and meet their needs. And he would heal them and he would cast demons out. He would teach them. He was there for them. He demonstrated this tender mercy that it wasn't just, oh, I feel bad. I have compassion. No, the compassion is seen in action. We saw him move to a place where he met the needs of the people that he was encountering. You know, if you're struggling with showing tender mercies, and I'm sure that we do oftentimes, I want you to remember the tender mercies that Jesus has demonstrated to you. You Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't ignore you, get frustrated with you, with all the afflictions that are in your life, with all the issues that you had? Aren't you glad that he didn't say, you know what, you got too many problems. I'm done with you. I got so many other people that I got to try to work on and deal with. Aren't you glad he showed you tender mercies even though you didn't deserve it? And that's how he wants us, to interact and treat others. The second godly quality that Paul tells us to put on is kindness. The Greek word uh, translated kindness means goodness of heart, a demonstration of compassion, consideration, and care towards someone. William Barclay wrote this about kindness. The ancient writers define kindness as the virtue of the man whose neighbor's good is as dear to him as his own. It is use of wine which has grown mellow with age and lost its harshness. You know, when someone else's good is as dear to you as your own good, it's usually going to bring you to a place where you treat others as you yourself would like to be treated. And I'm sure all of us like others to treat us with kindness. We want other people to to show us that, but that is the way that we also should be treating them. But unfortunately... The reality is, so often, instead of demonstrating kindness in our words and kindness in our action, we oftentimes struggle with being harsh, which is the ex- opposite of kindness. And when you're harsh, it brings some problems to your relationship. The book of Proverbs gives us a, a great warning. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 1 it says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. You know, when you're kind with someone, especially someone who's just rude to you or, or difficult to be around, you know, that soft answer is a demonstration of kindness. And notice what that produces. That soft answer is going to benefit the relationship. Why? Because it turns away wrath. But you get upset, you're annoyed, and instead of that soft answer, you come out with that harsh word, Guess what that does to your relationship? It stirs up anger. It just makes the problem worse. It makes them more upset. And so you could have diffused it with that soft word, but instead you pour gas on that fire with that harsh word, and all of a sudden things get so much worse. Is kindness something that you put on every day in your relationship with others? Once again, Jesus, the perfect example of, of someone who always demonstrated kindness. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28-30, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is such a, a wonderful thing that Jesus is just pleading with people, come to me. All you who labor are heavy laden, those of you who have all these issues and problems and and pressures that are just bogging you down, come to me. I have something that I want to give you. I want to give you rest. But notice he also says, I want you to take something. Take my yoke upon you because it is easy. The interesting thing there, that word, Greek word translated easy, is the same exact Greek word here translated kindness. My, My yoke is not just, it's easy, it's kind. I want to give to you something that is kind, something that is going to help and benefit you as you're going through all this struggle. So if you're struggling with being kind to others, once again, it's so important for us to remember the kindness that Jesus demonstrates to us. You know, aren't you glad Jesus isn't harsh with you? Aren't you glad He doesn't treat you the way you deserve to be treated? Well, that's how Jesus wants us to treat others. The third godly quality that Paul tells us to put on is humility. The Greek word here translated humility means to have a lowly and modest opinion of oneself, to have a deep sense of one's moral littleness, lowliness of mind. You know, humility is the absence of pride, a concern to put others first and a realistic grasp of where we're at in the body of Christ. And this is such an important thing, because when we're trying to relate with one another and have good relationships with one another, one of the things that destroys those so quick is our own pride. But that humility gives us a a true, honest perspective of, of where we are in these relationships and how we should view ourselves and view others. James Edwards wrote this about humility. True humility is not putting ourselves down, but rather lifting up others. If we concentrate on lifting up others, putting down ourselves will take care of itself. As we go through life exalting Christ and others, then genuine humility will be inevitable. If we exalt ourselves, then God will take care of our humiliation, for He promises to humble the proud. It is much less painful to do it the first way. You know, humility is not best seen in the fact that I say I'm humble. It's actually best seen in how I treat others. If I'm exalting them, if I'm lifting them up, that just shows the reality that I truly am humble. Sometimes people who say they're humble all the time are actually some of the most prideful, and they want people to see them as humble because they are so prideful, and so words can be deceiving. Philippians 2, 3, and 4 says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. The humble person doesn't do things out of selfish ambition, doesn't do things out of pride. Instead, because they are humble, they're willing to esteem others better than themselves. They're willing to look out for the interest of others, not just their own. And this is really one of the best ways that humility is demonstrated. Wayne Mack wrote this. A proud person seeks his own honor, considering himself to be filled with wisdom, someone whose insights should be sought after and highly regarded. The humble person takes seriously Christ's warning about being judgmental, but the proud are quick to shift blame, assuming in any conflict the other person is all wrong, or at least mainly wrong. The humble person so fully acknowledges the plank in his own eye that the faults of others, by contrast, seem to be mere specks. When contentions arises, he examine himself. I know how sinful I am. I'd better start exam, better start by examining myself. What wrong attitudes do I have? What unwholesome words have I spoken? What unchristlike actions have I displayed? Where am I in error? When you have a conflict with someone else, is this the way that you start? with an examination of yourself. If you do, that shows great humility. Pride is the thing that says, you know what, I'm just going to focus completely on this other person. It's all their fault. They're the ones who did everything. You know, I I am just completely innocent in everything. And it's the human, you know, natural response to think like, let's blame it all on them. But you know what, we should take that self-examination and say, Lord, what have I done in this relationship that could be part of this problem? And be focused on that and be dwelling upon that and be looking to see how we can learn and grow. Once again, Jesus, the perfect example of humility. Ephesians 2, 5-8 says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Jesus showed the greatest demonstration of humility that there ever was and ever will be when he left his throne in heaven and then came down to earth, became one of us, That in itself was a huge aspect of humility, but it went even farther. He then died for the sin of the world. If you're struggling with being humble in all of your sinfulness, and all of your weakness, remember Jesus, the sinless one, the one without any weakness, God in flesh, humbled himself. And if Jesus humbled himself, how much more should you and I and all our sin and all our issues and all our problems to think more highly of ourselves, to have that pride is just so not the truth of what we are. The fourth godly quality that Paul tells us to put on is meekness. The Greek word translated meekness means the gentleness demonstrated to those you have power or influence over. This word describes power under control. Aristotle defined this Greek word like this. It's the quality of the man whose anger is so controlled that he's always angry at the right time and never at the wrong time. It describes a man who is never angry at any personal wrong he may receive, but who is capable of righteous anger when he sees others wrong. You know, when you hear this word meekness oftentimes we think of someone who's real timid, someone who's weak but that's not what this word is speaking of at all it's speaking actually of someone who has great power, someone who has great strength but that power and strength that they possessed that if they wanted to unleash it could destroy you if they wanted to unleash it it would be really bad for you but that they choose to keep it under control that power and that strength is under control. In their life, and instead of dealing harshly with you like they could because they're so strong, they choose to deal gently with you and keep that strength under control. You know, oftentimes in our dealings with one another, we want to display our strength and power. Oh, you messed with me. You're gonna regret it. I'm gonna show you what I can do. I'm gonna, you know, demonstrate my strength and power and, and make you regret ever doing anything against me. You know, I grew up never being taught never to hit a girl. And there was one day that my sister made me put that to the test. I don't remember why she was upset at me. I probably did something to deserve it. But she, you know, was super mad, in my face, shouting and screaming. And then she slapped me. And everything inside of me just wanted to punch her in the face. And I was just like, you know, this, you know, and I'm much bigger than her. And I could have, you know, did it if I wanted to. But, you know, I decided to take that strength, that power, You know, and say, you know what? I'm just going to walk away. And that was meekness. You know, to have under control your strength and power, to deal gently instead of harshly with someone, even if you feel like they deserve the harsh treatment. Is meekness something that you put on every day in your relationship with others? Well, it's something that Jesus did. 1 Peter 2 21 through 23 says, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Jesus is completely God, has all the power of God at his disposal. You want to talk about true meekness, true power and strength under control. You know, I just cringe at those who mocked Him. Who those that, you know, as He was going and being led to the cross, who those that punched Him in the face, oh, you know, prophesy, who's going to hit you next? Having no clue of the reality that if He wanted to, He could strike them dead at any moment. He could have destroyed them all. But yet, in His meekness, That strength, that power was under control. And he chose not to lash out at them. He chose to be gentle to them. If you're struggling with that kind of response, especially to people you feel like, well, they deserve it. You should have heard what they said to me. You should have seen what they did to me. Remember how Jesus has demonstrated meekness to you. Aren't you glad Jesus keeps his strength under control in dealing with you? And that's what he wants us to do towards others. The fifth godly quality, perhaps the most difficult one to do, is long-suffering. The Greek word translated long-suffering means a patient endurance and steadfastness, a willingness to suffer for a long time. This word speaks ultimately of a capacity that when you're wrong, you will wait and wait before Retaliation, that you're willing to suffer for a long time. You know, this patient endurance is something that is so important in our relationships with others because the reality is we get on each other's nerves. We sin against each other. We have issues with one another. And so we cause other people to suffer. They cause us to suffer. And so we now have a choice to make. Am I willing to suffer long? Or right when you do this, man, we're going to have it out. You know, I'm not going to put up with that. There's no way that you're going to do that to me without me retaliating against you. And, you know, the easy way to deal with these difficult uh, situations that cause suffering is, one, you just maybe end them. Or you blow up on people, you think, okay, but you know ultimately what God wants from us is that we would patiently endure through the hard times, that we wouldn't give up on them, that we would continue to suffer long with them. Before you leave in the morning, you know you're going to go to work and deal with those people that you have a hard time with, or maybe at school, or maybe it's even in your family. Are you willing to put on long-suffering? Now you have that mindset. As I go through the day today, I'm choosing as I depend on the Lord to suffer along with people because I know people are going to do things that aren't going to make me happy, that are going to cause me problems, and I'm going to suffer long with them. And Jesus is once again the perfect example of that. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. You know, of all the areas where the Lord is long-suffering, I'm glad that it's this one. That He's long-suffering towards us, not wishing that anybody should perish in hell, but that all should come to repentance. And Sometimes we're like, Lord, just strike that person down. They're so horrible. You know, I'm sure people thought of that with Saul of Tarsus as he was imprisoning and killing Christians. Lord, just end that man's life. Look what he's doing against your church. Why aren't you dealing with this? Why are you, you know, suffering long with him? Because I don't want anyone to perish. Because I want all to come to repentance. What a wonderful truth, because Paul does come to repentance and God uses him in amazing ways. Aren't you glad Jesus suffered long with you as you continued in sin, as you continue to reject him? as you had opportunity after opportunity, as people shared with you and you still said, no, I don't want anything to do with him, that he suffered long with you, that he didn't give up on you. But you know what? Even after we accepted him, it'd be great if we just lived a perfect life, but that's not the case. Aren't you glad that he still suffers long with you? Aren't you glad that as you continue to sin, that you still have your issues and your faults, that Jesus still suffers long with you? So when you're struggling to be long-suffering with others, remember how long-suffering Jesus has been with you. The sixth godly quality that Paul tells us to put on is bearing with one another. The Greek word translated bearing means to put up with someone, to help sustain them, to bear with them. As I've already mentioned, you know, in the body of Christ, we've got lots of Struggles. Lots of people who got issues, who have sin, and when we get together, it's just a natural reality that there are going to be people that, you know, rub us the wrong way. There are going to be people that we have problems with. And unfortunately, oftentimes, we're not willing to put up with them like we should. Galatians 2 says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You know, I think there's a sad reality Is sometimes we, we see people who have burdens and instead of this desire to, I want to go and bear that with you, I want to help you in that, <laughs> we just look at that as saying, don't bring your burden to me because that's just going to be a burden on me. And so instead of a bearing their burden, we just see them as a burden. And then all of a sudden, we don't want to do anything for them. We want to help them. We don't want them to make our life any more difficult. And that goes completely against what God would desire of us. That when we see people who have burdens, that we would say, hey, I want to be there with you. I want to be there to help you. I want to bear your burden. I don't want to just put up with you. I actually want to help you. I know that you're going through this difficulty or this struggle, or maybe you keep giving in to this temptation. Hey, I want to be there with you. I want to pray for you. I want to help you in what you're dealing with. You know, I think of Jesus with his disciples. And his disciples were a cast of characters, man. They had a lot of issues. And as you go through the Gospels, especially before they're filled with the Spirit of God, and, and God does a lot of things through them in the book of Acts, man, they're constantly arguing about who's the greatest. They got all sorts of issues. Peter's regularly putting his foot in his mouth. And you know, I can just imagine three years with these guys, man, you're going to have to bear a lot. You know, Jesus had a lot of, of things that he would have to put up with with the men that he was spending every day with. But you know what? He did bear with them every day. And the wonderful news for you and I is he also bears with us every day. Every day he puts up with our weaknesses. He puts up with our struggles. He puts up with the fact that we say, Lord, I'm I'm never going to do this again. And then the next day we do it again. You know, he continues to put up with us. He bears with us. He holds us up. He helps us in the areas where we're struggling. And if that's a struggle for you, you don't want to bear with someone else, you don't want their problems to be something that gives you more (laughs) struggles in your life, remember what Jesus has done for you. And do that for them. The seventh godly quality that Paul tells us to put on is forgive one another. The Greek word translated forgive means to pardon, to graciously restore one another, to forgive. But this challenge to forgive, Paul kind of adds to it. Because unfortunately, I think there's concepts like love and forgiveness where we have our own definition, we have our own mindset of what that looks like versus what God really wants it to look like. And so Jesus clarifies, don't just forgive the way you think you should forgive, or don't just forgive the way that you see people in the culture forgive. I want you to forgive in a different way. Notice what Jesus tells them. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. So if someone has an issue, they've done something against you, guess what? You're now in this position of offering forgiveness and the way that Jesus says you need to forgive them is the same way that he has forgiven you demonstrate forgiveness, define forgiveness based on how God has forgiven us. That's the kind of forgiveness that He wants us to show others. Now, sadly, often when we forgive others, it's very different than how Jesus forgave us. Jesus forgives everyone, no matter what they've done to Him. But for us, oftentimes, there is a limit to what we're willing to forgive. There are certain people, nope, you're never going to be in my forgiveness book. And hey, you did that. That's, that's beyond the scope of what I'm willing to forgive. Sadly, we often put limitations on what we're willing to forgive. Jesus never did. Jesus makes the first move towards us in forgiveness. And think about this. He made the first move towards us, and he's completely innocent. He did nothing wrong to us, and yet he pursued us. He made the first move towards us and typically our response to forgiveness is I'm not offering that at all until the guilty party makes the first move towards me. They're the ones wrong and until they come and repent and they come and and make the first move. I'm not addressing it. I'm not coming to them. I'm not seeking to bring forgiveness to this relationship. They should have to do it because they're the ones who sinned. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus forgives knowing that we'll sin again sometimes in the exact same way. But oftentimes, we're only willing to, prevent, to, to forgive, say, okay, I'll forgive you as long as you never do this again. And if you ever do this again, don't come back to me asking for forgiveness because that's it. You know, I'll do it this once, where Jesus says, you know what, I'll keep forgiving you. You keep sinning, I'll keep forgiving. Even if it's the same way, I'm going to forgive you. Jesus forgives, and then notice what he does. He grants adoption to those who sin against him. Not only am I going to forgive you, I'm going to elevate your position. You're now going to be, you know, children of mine. Well, what? We're often saying, you know what, I'll forgive you, but you're never going to be my friend again. I'll forgive you, but I'm never going to have a relationship with you again. We don't think of elevating the relationship. We think of getting rid of it or or limiting it. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus bore the entire penalty for the wrong we did against him. But we often will not forgive unless the offender agrees to bear the entire penalty for their own wrong. And this is one of the most convicting realities of this. If Jesus bore it all, the innocent one said, I'll do it all. I'll bear it all for forgiveness to happen. And we say there's only one way forgiveness is going to happen between you and me. You bear it all. You're the guilty one. We're not willing to bear anything that we feel like, hey, we haven't done it. We shouldn't have to bear anything. Well, Jesus says, well, hey, I bore it all. Why? Because I want forgiveness to happen and I'm willing to do whatever it takes to make forgiveness happen. Jesus forgives and brings complete restoration. But so often that's something that we're just not willing to do. So as you can see, the way that we forgive is often not the way that Jesus forgave. And so that's why when he speaks to forgiveness and pretty much almost every time the Bible challenges forgiveness to us, It's connected with, as God forgave you. That's how I want you to forgive, like I forgave you. And this is something that we got to remember because there's times where we feel like you're not worthy. You don't deserve it. You've done something too bad. And we got to remember, I'm not worthy. I've done way too many things too bad. But you know what? God still continues to forgive me. And he now wants me to show that same type of forgiveness to this undeserving jerk, to this person who's done something so horrible. Yes, that might be true, but God still desires us to show them forgiveness like he has shown us. The eighth godly quality that Paul tells us to put on is love. Paul says, but above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. The Greek word here translated love is agape. It's the love that we see connected with God, this unconditional love that he gives to mankind, not expecting anything in return, willing to love unlovable people. But notice what Paul says. He says, but above all these things, put on love. This is a very interesting Greek phrase here. Above all these things, it has, you know, kind of two different ways in which it can be looked at. First, it was used to describe the position of something, to show that it was greater than other things. This is typically how we would use the word above. If I say I'm, I'm above you, I'm making a statement that I'm greater than you are. And so, you know, when it's spoke of that way, it was used in this context of, you know, a greater position, greater than something else. And so as Paul says, above all these things, these other seven great qualities we should put on is love. It's greater than them. It's more important than them. It's something that's better than they are. But the second way this Greek phrase was used was to describe something that went over other things, and it held them together. So this Greek phrase could actually be translated, and some of your Bible translations do translate it this way, over all these things put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Now, it's interesting here, because you have this statement, which is the bond of perfection, it seems to make more sense that it would be saying over all these things, because what does this bond do? It connects things. It binds things together. And this would fit perfectly with the picture of what Paul is saying. I'm telling you to put things on, like you're putting on clothes. You put on this thing, and this thing, and this thing. You've got these seven things that you've now placed on yourself, these seven godly qualities that are now on you, and over all of them, put on love. That love's kind of like the belt that holds it all together. That if you don't have this, all the other stuff's going to fall off. If you don't have this, then all the other things that you're putting on, you know, they're not going to work. They're not going to operate the way in which they should. You see, without love, first of all, you wouldn't even want to put on the other seven things. Who wants to be kind? You know, Who wants to be tender? Who wants to do this if there's no true love? Well, none of us really do. But then sometimes we just kind of do it because it's like, well, I know I should. I don't have any love. I don't want to, but I'm just going to do it anyway. Well, that kind of mindset might be admirable that you're trying, but without love, it's useless. Without love, it will not produce what you think it will. Paul shares with us why love is so important in 1 Corinthians 13. He says this in verses 1 through 3. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, though I can remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Notice that in these three verses, we have this phrase, but have not love, repeated three different times. And I want you to note that Paul connects this phrase, but have not love, to what we say, to spiritual gifts that we possess, and to great works that we do for God. If what you say does not come from love, then Paul brings out the reality it's just an annoying noise. It's like clanging cymbals. If your words aren't coming from a heart of love, they're annoying. They're just a noise. If you possess great spiritual gifts, oh wow, you'd be so amazing. No, Paul says if you don't have love, you're nothing. Oh, but I'm the prophet, and I got this gift, and I got that gift. If you don't have love connected with it, Paul says, it's nothing. If you gave everything you had to the poor, and even more than that, you gave your life as a martyr for God, but had not love, Paul says, it would profit you nothing. Nothing. What Paul is communicating in these three verses is that love for God, love for others, it's the foundation for our words, for our spiritual gifts, for our works. Love is what brings value to them. It's what enables them to be used the way that God has designed them to be used. But you know what? When there's no love in our words, no love in our gifts, no love in our works, They just become worthless. They become useless. They do not function the way that God desires them to. But connected with love, man, your words are amazing. Connected with love, your spiritual gifts can do wonders. Connected to love, your works for God could impact the world. So Paul's not against words. He's not against gifts. He's not against works. He's just saying, make sure they're connected to love because without it, everything else falls apart. And so the same mindset, man, you got seven things you need to put on, but don't forget to put the belt that holds it all together. Love, that's the thing that's necessary because if you don't have love, your tender mercies are worthless. You don't have love, all these other things that you're putting on, they're not going to work. They're not going to do what they've been designed to do. A third grade science teacher was asked or asked her student to describe salt The students struggled for a little bit and then finally came up with this statement. Salt its what makes french fries taste bad when you don't sprinkle it on. You know what? Many foods that taste good or bad when they're missing that key ingredient. Imagine pizza without cheese. Tacos without meat or salsa. Pancakes without syrup. When we are in Scotland, people put ketchup on their pancakes. It's just revolting. But imagine pancakes without syrup. When you remove that key ingredient from food, they go from tasting good to tasting bad. In the same way, when you remove the key ingredient of love from your words, from your gifts, from your works, they go from something that was good to now something that's bad something that could have made a huge impact for God to something that's now just worthless and useless. What was meant to be good and profitable no longer is. So Paul says, Over all your tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing and forgiving, put on love because love is the bond of perfection. It's the thing that binds it all together, that holds it all together and gives them value and worth. Warren Wearsby tells a story that I love. He says, this is, there's a natural logical kind of loving that loves lovely things and lovely people. But there's another kind of loving that does not look for value in what it loves, but creates value in what it loves. Like a small child's rag doll. When a young girl has a little rag doll, it's often an inseparable companion. She has other toys that are intrinsically far more valuable but none that she loves like the rag doll. Soon the rag doll becomes more and more rag and then less and less doll. It also becomes more and more dirty. If you try to clean the rag doll, it becomes more ragged still. If you don't clean the rag doll, it becomes more dirty. The sensible thing to do is throw the rag doll in the trash. But that is unthinkable for anyone who loves the little girl. If you love the little girl, you love the rag doll. It's part of the package. In the same way, if you love God, you should love those that God loves. It's part of the package. You see, God doesn't look for value in you. He creates value in you because of his love for you. That's why every person in this world is of great value, not because of what they accomplish, not because of what they do, but because they are loved deeply by the creator of heaven and earth. God values them so much that he gave his life for them. And because God greatly values and loves everyone, guess what that means for us? We should love them as well. It's part of the package. John says, you can't say, I, I love God and hate my brother. It doesn't work that way. If you truly love God, you got to love others. It's part of it. You've got to love the ones that God loves. But this is so often the struggle that we have. Oh, I love God. I just don't love people in his church. I could spend all my time with the Lord Just put me on a desert island with nobody else. No, God says, I want you to love those that I love. And yeah, sometimes it's hard. Yeah, you're going to have to put on that kindness, that tender mercy. You're going to have to put on forgiveness. You're going to have to bear with them when it's hard. But that's what I do for you. And that's what I want you to do for them. Two friends, John and Dave, were hiking when they spotted a mountain lion staring at them. John froze in his tracks, but Dave sat down on a log, tore off his hiking boots, started putting on a pair of running shoes out of his backpack. John asked, What are you doing? You can't outrun a mountain lion. Dave responded, I know. I just have to outrun you. That's the kind of love that the world promotes. A love that's just self-centered. It's all about me. I don't care what happens to you. God says, no, no, no. There's a different type of love for you as a believer in me. Not as the world loves do I want you to love. I want you to love like this. Jesus said in John 13, 34, and 35, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The way that we're commanded to love others is to love like Jesus loved. Just like he says, forgive like I forgave, I want you to love like I love. And Jesus loved with the greatest love possible. He was willing to sacrifice himself. He was willing to die for us. He tells us the greatest demonstration of love is if you're willing to lay down your life for a friend and that's what he asks us to do for others in the body of Christ. He says, I want you to show my love to them. I want you to be willing to lay down your desires, your you know, whatever, die to yourself so you, you can love them. And you know what? When you do that, that's when the world's gonna know that you follow me. That's when the world's gonna know that you're my disciple. You want the world to know that you're a disciple of Jesus Christ? Show it through your love. Let them see that because it goes against the way the world works. It goes against the world's concept of love. Scott Pollock wrote some great things that kind of sum up these verses really well. It says this. You're chosen, holy, and loved in Christ. That right there should cleanse and empty your heart of selfish pride and arrogance. It should humble and motivate you right into this wardrobe of the heart. Compassion. I didn't deserve God's blessing. Kindness. God has been so kind to me. Humility. All I am is by God's sovereign grace in Christ. Gentleness. Christ gently drew me to himself and deals now gently with me. Patience. Oh, how patient God is with me. Bearing with one another. How does Christ put up with my selfishness and lies and sinful thoughts? Forgiving each other. How can I do less since Christ has forgiven me a billion fold? I must forgive penny debts and love. Didn't Christ love me and give Himself in my place? With each thing that we look at, of something that we need to put on, we should look to what Jesus has done for us as the example, as the motivation, but also as the enabler, the one that's going to enable me to put these things on in my life so that it can revolutionize the relationships that I have with others. Jesus is the perfect example of tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long suffering, bearing, and forgiving. But you know what? The greatest example of all is his example of love. He loved us in the greatest way possible by sacrificing himself who was innocent to pay for the sins that we are guilty of.